0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host David Rothkopf and I am here in the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark where I am joined virtually by Rosa Brooks who is somewhere in the Washington DC area. I'm fairly certain. Where are you, Rosa?
1: David, I'm I'm right here in Washington DC.
0: At Georgetown?
1: At Georgetown University Law Center.
0: Yes. The
1: white-hot epicenter of the universe. (laughs)
0: Yes. And also in Washington, we have Dr. Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. And you're also somewhere in D.C., right, Evelyn?
2: I am. Cleveland Park.
0: Wow. Very nice. And in London... We have Corey Shockey, double I, double S. <laughs> I love S.
3: that you said it as though there was a question mark at the end of it, David. <laughs> well, I'm
0: never quite sure where you are, and I thought you might be somewhere in mourning for the Cardinals season.
3: Well, in fact, I am in mourning for the Cardinals season. <laughs> the Cubs made it quite clear why they are carrying the National League as Central Division pennant, and we are not. By playing magnificently to close out the season against us. So I am grieving that the fact that my dad's ball club, the Giants, couldn't beat the Dodgers and my own club's troubles mean yesterday was the last game of the season for my ball club. So, yeah, I am indeed grieving, David. Thank you very much for taking but, that up.
0: But you, as the holder of the TR of optimism, must be looking <laughs> at this from the perspective that pitchers and catchers report in four and a half months. Hey!
3: Yes. Um, The reason to send flowers and chocolates in the middle of February is because that's when pitchers and catchers report for spring training. And my ball club is shaping up with a whole bunch of young firebrand pitchers, which are going to bode so well for us next season. (laughs) (laughs) That's <laughs> so, what everybody wanted. That's where we all want it to, to, to start with. So,
0: so what I'd like to do is I'd like to start with a bit of domestic drama in the U.S. And then I'd like to sort of tease it out and see whether it really means anything for the U.S. role in the world. Uh, and that has to do with the battle over the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to be the next justice of the United States Supreme Court, because... You know, it's not just a nomination battle or it's not just a conversation about a entitled white guy who apparently can't hold his liquor and who, uh, you know, can't contain himself in, in public discussions. Um, but it also reflects the nature of political divisions in the United States. Uh, it is going to have an effect uh, almost certainly on the uh elections which are a couple of weeks away and those elections of course could have a big effect on how the United States acts in the world. Uh and so I'd start I'd like to start at the white hot center of the universe at Georgetown Law Center. Um with Thank you, Ro- David. D- yeah, yeah, with Rosa. <laughs> um who has been sort of, you know, on top of this whole thing and obviously looking at it from a legal perspective. And I'd like you to sort of start us on this journey of trying to tease out the broader significance of this battle.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, look. First of all, to state the obvious, the battle over Kavanaugh is both an uh, a a cause and and effect of the deep partisan divide in this country at this point. Um, I think it's getting harder and harder for most Americans to separate out their partisan perspectives from what's good for the country as a whole. Um, And we've seen that in the way this has been playing out in the media and the way this has been playing out in Congress. And that's pretty darn depressing. Um, What is the longer-term significance? Um, I won't even talk about the longer-term significance of a potential Kavanaugh uh, confirmation on the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, because we're not really a legal podcast. So let's leave that aside um, but I think the well, we're term, le-
0: we're we're legal.
1: <laughs> we're, we're legal. You don't mean we're an
0: illegal podcast. <laughs> we're a totally <laughs> lawful podcast. Yeah, we're lawful. And yet,
1: okay. and yet, uh, no. I mean, I mean, we could go on at, at great length, and I don't think this is the probably this is not the right podcast to talk about the the implications of of Kavanaugh's judicial philosophy for for the Supreme Court. Um, I think you know it's been said it will you know it will alter the court for 20, 30 years to come um, and, you know, cementing in many ways, a, a partisan divide on the court itself. It will have pretty negative consequences, I think, for the court's legitimacy, which is already uh, in some jeopardy. But I, I think to me, the the sort of broader ramifications of this, um, which, which which do affect America, America's role in the world and American foreign policy and America's influence around the world, um, is that we have always taken enormous pride in setting an example of democracy for the rest of the world, one that other states should try to emulate. And we're not looking that good right now. Um, and it, it's not just that we are presenting the unseemly spectacle of everybody screaming at everybody else. Um, I think it goes beyond that. Um, the the uh, Think about the sort of structural pieces of this. Um, we now have a situation in which, because of the nature of the Supreme Court confirmation process, it's it's the U.S. Senate that confirms Supreme Court nominees. Uh, our Constitution uh, contains, among other profoundly anti-democratic provisions, uh, a provision saying that every state, regardless of the size of its population, every single one of America's states gets the same number of senators. So Wyoming gets the same number of senators uh, as California or New York or Texas, right? Um, and given the nature of American demographics, one of the things that that has done has, is that it has sort of permanently tilted the Senate uh, towards a whiter, older, and more rural population than, than exists in the country at large. Uh, so we have a body of individuals who are about to vote on Kavanaugh uh, who represent essentially a dwindling share of the u.s population and who are now in a position to put into place a Supreme Court justice who will probably be there for the next 30 to 40 years uh, making decisions that will affect all Americans and and to to give a little bit more more clarity to just what the gap is between uh, demography and the the current US Senate, um, A CNN analysis a couple months ago found that um, if uh, let's see, let me see if I can find you the exact numbers here. Um, If every single Republican in the Senate votes for Kavanaugh and every single Democrat votes against Kavanaugh, uh, Kavanaugh will be confirmed. Given given that Republicans have uh, more senators than Democrats, but the but the the minority of senators who would be voting no if it's a strict party line vote will represent 30 to 40 million more americans than the senators who vote yes uh and that's because each two each senator you know if you're if you're the senator in wyoming each senator for wyoming represents under 300,000 people if you're the senator for california each senator for california represents uh uh well somebody's gonna have to figure that out based on the population of california but it's it's you know 20 or so times more than uh it's almost 20 million people per senator uh, for California. Um, and so what does that mean? What does that mean that we have this sort of profoundly anti-democratic body at this point that is over-representing one demographic uh, in, and having results that will affect America for generations? You know, I think it becomes harder and harder for us to be a model to anybody else. And and actually, we're seeing that. There was a study a couple of years ago of the degree to which states that modify their own constitutions or adopt new constitutions use the U.S. Constitution as a model. And it found that for most of the last century, many states used the U.S. Constitution as a model. But for the last few decades, fewer and fewer are doing so Partly because I think they've seen that our constitution in all kinds of ways is actually becoming a, a sort of crippling force in American politics. So that I think, you know, it's really hard to know how that plays out in the next decade or two. But I think part of our dwindling global influence is that we 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 have less and less ability to credibly say, hey, world, look at us. We got this one right because we so manifestly seem to have this one wrong. Well,
0: let me pick up on that. I was going to go to Evelyn, but let me go to Corey first, and then I'll come back to Evelyn. Because, um, you you know, Corey, the data that that, uh, Rosa's talking about, if you project it out 20 years from now, you end up with something like um, 30% of the population having 68 seats in the Senate and 70% of the population having the rest. That's not only making the country more conservative and less democratic, as Rosa points out, but it tends to be those red states tend to be a little bit more isolationist, a little bit more xenophobic. They're, you know, they're a little bit less tolerant. It's just the nature of things that when people are in cities that are diverse, they grow comfortable with diversity. And when they're in places that are less diverse, they become... uh Less comfortable with it, and we're about to go into a period where the upper house of the United States Congress is more wary of the rest of the world um, than than the the vast majority of the country.
3: Yes, um, you know, I was gnashing my teeth as my dear friend Rosa was talking, uh, because
0: that's not good uh, for I, your teeth, by the way
3: disagree with her on this one, although I I see you the point that it has, at the moment, the foreign policy consequences of, of the Senate being less uh, supportive of engagement in the world. But that's not always the Senate's position, and it may not be the Senate's position, even as it represents more and more rural states. I think... The main reason I was gnashing my teeth, though, was that it's it's not new that the United States Senate overrepresents small states, um, and it was designed for that purpose. So I struggle with two things. First, uh, tell me how we get a different constitutional system that the states overrepresented in the Senate agree to give that up in order to better make what the House of Representatives is designed to do which is represent people by population as opposed to by state that is you are you to make the changes you and Rosa seem to be suggesting you would have to neuter what the Senate was designed to do as a balance to the house, which is make small states or smallly populated uh, states feel safe blended in with big cities and big states. And so as a practical matter, I don't see how you ever get to that change. But moreover, that's the system was designed that way for a reason, which is to balance big and small. And if you take away the balance, um, it seems to me unfair to the people who don't share the views of people who live in big diverse cities, and they're entitled to their views. So it seems to me that a better solution than a constitutional change is we need to engage our fellow Americans and win this argument about America engaged in the world, rather than deny them the ability to have small-state representation that balances popular representation in the House. Well, the but, but, last but, but, thing... Oh, sorry. Uh, nope, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, I just was going to ask a question. What's so good about giving small states this extra bump? Why do they need it? I mean, what? how does that benefit the uh, they country? They
3: need it in order to agree to participate in this system, right? right. It, that's what it took to get Rhode Island into the united states
0: well i know and but things it, have and changed it's,
3: not, it's you... not ipso facto wrong to protect the views of the minority against the views of the majority
0: no i understand <laughs> I, I understand that but there are lots of minorities in america and in in the, by giving you know the geo the geographic minority uh, upper hand it undermines the interests of a lot of other minorities in the country i, I mean i'm not you know i wasn't by the way, arguing for this position, I was just observing that this was a change that's going to take place. Um, but I guess if you scratch a little deeper, yeah, I am arguing for it. I think this is one of the flaws in the Constitution that's going to cause a real problem in the United All States. Right. One
1: one one thing I to just throw in there um, is that the gap inside I mean, you're absolutely right, Corey. Of course, the Constitution was designed to do exactly that—to um, balance, to 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 prevent the tyranny of the majority. Uh, among other things, but I think what what's happened is we've drifted towards the tyranny of the minority, uh, which is the only thing worse. Um, but it's it's worth noting just just two facts about this. One, the decision to have two senators per state rather than some form of more proportional representation representation was hotly divided contested when the constitution was adopted. There was a huge debate over it then, and it barely made it through. You know, that it wasn't a foregone conclusion then. And we shouldn't accept as a foregone conclusion now something that wasn't a foregone conclusion 225 years ago. We particularly shouldn't accept it as a foregone conclusion given at at the time of the Constitution's adoption, uh, I was just skimming some population figures for the states at the time the Constitution came into being. No state had a population that exceeded the population of any other state by more than a factor of about eight we now have states like California and New York that exceed the populations of the smallest states by, you know, factors of, of many, many, many times that, you know, we have California with 20 million people. We have Wyoming with 500,000 people. Um, so, so I think that the, the, you can agree in principle that there should be some sort of extra boost of representation for minorities of all kinds, including those who inhabit less densely populated or smaller states, and yet at the same time think that demographic shifts and urbanization in the United States uh, have meant that we have now skewed Thing, skewed power in the direction of a small subset of the population in a way that the framers could never have imagined I, and I'll, I'll I'll let Evelyn jump in and leave for leave for later I think your other your other point which we, we should also talk about what do you do about this which is a, a fair question
2: well th- and that's that's actually what I wanted to chime in on because I'm I'm with Cory on this I'm a conservative with a small C when it comes to tinkering with Congress I worked in the legislative branch about a decade. Um, and even before that, I was on the House side as a fellow when I was still in grad school. Um, and then most of my and then my legislative career was in the Senate on one of the committees and then running a congressional commission. And I can't see a better solution. So even though <laughs> I completely see your point about the current dilemma that we're in, um, Rosa, I just don't know what a better solution is. And so without Having a better one at my fingertips, I revert back to let's not tinker with it so much. And actually, I think the reason we're in this problem right now with Kavanaugh is because Senators Reid, Harry Reid and McConnell, but really you have to put the responsibility on Harry Reid because he was the majority leader at the time, changed the rules in the Senate so that you could confirm a uh, you confirm, confirm judges. And of course, that includes the Supreme Court, any Supreme Court nominee uh, Supreme Court justice, without having the 60 votes, without having the filibuster. So he got rid of the filibuster in that instance. That was a huge thing in the in the history of the Senate to eliminate that. That is actually where the Senate gets a lot of its cooling factor, if you will, because you have to get more than 50 percent. You have to get an overwhelming majority, if you will, of support for um, any kind of uh controversial piece of legislation or controversial nominee so i i would i would I would argue for keeping everything as is and actually going back in time and and reestablishing the filibuster well,
0: um, oh, yeah sorry okay so Corey, you know let's let's go back to this I, I know you love the nineteenth century as no place else and and uh you know we we've had a history in this country periodically of big divisions producing big problems and you know the notion that somehow um you know this 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 small number of states are going to have this very very large and increasingly disproportionate influence over the direction of the Senate of the United States and by the way the uh, uh collateral benefit in the electoral college that comes along with it um suggests uh you know potential problem and it, and as you say it's very hard to see how it will change but then the question becomes well, what do you do about it? Or what do people do about it? Move
3: and, there in
0: and, large numbers. Oh, okay, well that's one oh, possibility. I,
1: that's I agree.
3: <laughs> well,
0: I, I mean, I agree. Right? That's just
1: how Colorado that's, changed. That's at least that's a, that, at least that's one of the possible solutions. But well, you right. need
2: incentives then to get them there.
0: Yeah. Right. Except that they don't necessarily want the incentives, and they're not so embracing of that diversity. I want the but incentives. Well, I understand, and you like it in Wyoming, and and <laughs> I and, and 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 I and I and I, and I see that. But, you know, it seems to me that there are two possibilities, one very extreme, one very likely. You know, the extreme one is, and, and, you know, you talk about why would the the redder, more sparsely populated states uh, allow for a change? Well, another point is why will the more densely populated um, states that are underrepresented tolerate it? Why would California... You know, be in a system where Wyoming has equal cloud in the Senate. California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Wyoming is insignificant. So why would they tolerate it? And so in, you've you've got a choice. They either, you know, gradually, you know, they're sort of light, not lighthearted, but they're not ter- terribly seriously taken talk about secession. But you know, I've often thought about. You know, the solution to this is something called New Canadornia, And New Canadornia <laughs> is the west coast of the United States, Canada, and the east coast of the United States, which share a lot of views. And wait a minute.
1: Wait a minute. Can we can can we have parts of Florida, too?
0: That's the east coast. No! Yeah. Wait,
1: hold on. If we're going to gerrymander our own new country, I want to get to pick the best real estate for it.
0: So that's fine and you will be in charge of that. Oh, but good. but okay, thank you. but so new canadornia, you know, is kind of one option, but I think very unlikely. What seems more likely to me is that people increasingly you know don't take the central government of the United States as seriously and they become more state oriented and California says, "Well, screw you if you're not going to pass the laws that we want, we're going to pass our own." And the the center holds less and less in the US. So you know that, what?
3: Well, I, I think that know, would be uh, a great outcome for the country. In fact, uh, I defer to Rosa as the constitutional scholar amongst us. But my eighth grade civics class recommend, uh, recollection of this is that that was the country they thought they were forming. And that what has happened over about the last hundred years is an increasing consolidation of power in Washington that that maybe the natural ebb and flow of letting the great golden state of California set its own emission standards might serve us just as well.
0: By the way, don't diminish your eighth grade civics education because it's more than most people with graduate degrees have today. (laughs) At least there was some, right? Most people don't, don't get any civics education. But Rosa, you've been deferred to.
1: Oh uh, <laughs> no! I defer to Corey's eighth-grade civics teacher, of course, but 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 you know, I think that the the question that Corey throws out, uh, you know, and that Evelyn added on is 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 a fair question, which is it's easy to say, oh, gee, if we were starting from scratch in a perfect world is this the constitution that we would write today? And I think almost all of us would say no. And in certain respects, we would want significant changes. You know, there are probably pieces of the constitution that we would all want to keep and everybody would agree on. There are probably pieces that most of us would agree should be changed. Um, but that's totally separate from whether there's any realistic likelihood of that happening. Um, that being said, um, I, 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 think, I think there are a couple of things worth thinking about. Number one, um, it is worth Continuing to ask ourselves the question if we were starting from scratch today, not 240 uh, you know, or whatever it is years ago, um, what would our constitution look like? Um, because how do you know what marginal and incremental changes to push for uh, if you don't know what you want things to look like? How do you know that that we, we, that that shouldn't stop the fact that the fact that amending the constitution is extraordinarily difficult shouldn't stop us from having that discussion. Number one. Um, In part because, you know, we sure aren't going to be able to make any changes if we never even talk about it. Right. It's not going to happen. The only way it's ever going to happen, admitting that it's still pretty unlikely, is if we have an active and lively discussion about the pros and cons of doing so. So, you know, I think that having that conversation is really important. Uh, And part of the reason for that goes back to the point I was making about America's global stature, Take, take ourselves out of our American shoes. You know, Imagine looking at the state of American democracy from, from the eyes of some objective observer uh, who thinks about the fairness of electoral systems, who thinks about the fairness of different types of representation systems. We would look horrible. We're a disaster and we're getting worse you know for some of the you know some of the reasons that i said that a system that that may have made sense in the beginning makes less and less sense now a system that may make sense when the biggest state is 10 times bigger than the smallest state stops making sense when the biggest state is 40 times bigger than the smallest state and if we if we can't figure out anything to do about that it's going to hurt us more and more and more as time goes by it's going to hurt us in the eyes of others in terms of our attraction You know, our attraction to to investors, our attraction to immigrants—the kinds of immigrants we absolutely want, right? People who will revivify this nation. It's going to be harder to attract new people. It's going to be hard to attract the best and the brightest to a democracy that is seen as failing in all kinds of ways. And we are a failing democracy at this point. You know, I think we have to face that. You know, that doesn't mean that there is some magic, easy solution partly again because of our Constitution we're locked into not having any easy solutions um, but I, I don't think we should underestimate how devastating this is going to be if we can't find some way to mitigate the ongoing impact of the sort of structural imbalances created by our constitutional system you know the the, the last time those structural imbalances got this bad we had a civil war that and we changed the constitution. That was not a great way to do it, right? You know, that was a pretty miserable way to do it that caused untold pain to lots and lots of human beings across the country. We ended up with a constitution that I think most people would say was better than what we started with pre-civil war, you know, thanks to the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments, but we only got there after a devastating civil conflict. Um, that can happen. You know, I, I, and I think that the road that we are on right now is a road that leads us closer and closer to some sort of devastating future conflict. I don't think that's inevitable. I don't think that's desirable. you know, but I think if we can't start trying to think of mitigation mechanisms, whether it's are there amendments that would be feasible, maybe ones that don't take effect until thirty years from now that give people some time to adapt, you know, maybe, et cetera, you know, it does Corey's strategy of creating incentives to even out the population balance does that work? Uh, do people move of their own accord? You know, there are there are there's not a sort of inevitable pathway to decline in civil conflict, um, but I do think that that pathway becomes a lot more likely if we don't start having that very active debate about how to address these structural imbalances.
0: Well, you know, that constitutional scholar, Kanye West, came out this weekend against the 13th Amendment. He subsequently oh, amended yeah, that. Well. and and, and uh, Somebody said,
1: needs to talk to his eighth grade civics teacher. Yes, indeed.
0: Yeah, well, you know, Kim has given him a lot of good advice. But in any event. Uh, wait, you know,
2: Can I just add one thing to the list, David, before we move on? Um, please, statehood for Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico.
0: Yeah, well, the Republican Party will go for that. Um, I never. know,
2: I know. But I mean, if we're talking about hard problems that need to be solved, that need to be examined by scholars and politicians, we need to add those two into the mix. You yeah. know? It's true. I, 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 as, a, as a resident of Washington, D.C.,
1: I... I, <laughs> but, I it, but in, and in the question, meantime, I, you know, I would I would make a plea to all the Republican senators who I know are listening avidly to this podcast looking for <laughs> guidance on, on how to vote on Kavanaugh. You know, and I would say... Guys, you're you you represent a a minority of this country. Um don't vote for to confirm a candidate who is so divisive and who is opposed by a a simple majority of this country. You got other people. It doesn't have to be this guy, you know. <laughs> Find one of the other
2: people who well, will not be so divisive. But President Trump may think it needs to be this guy because of his view on executive
1: power. Indeed. Well Come let's on. let's set that aside for a second. This is
0: a this is a you know, a foreign policy, national security primarily oriented podcast. And you used a word in your um last analysis there, Rosa, which is really significant in a foreign policy context, and that was attraction. You know, uh Joe Nye in his discussion? I said uh, you 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 did were talking? Yes, you say we what did I say. Uh-oh. You you say we lose the uh, power of attraction that we've got oh. when our system breaks down. I didn't
1: know that that was a foreign policy word. <laughs> it,
0: the, the, right. Well, Corey will tell you that in Joe Nye's seminal work on soft power, he talk, describes it as You know, the power of attraction, the power of our system to attract, the power of us. I just
1: think that when we're talking about a candidate for the Supreme Court who has been accused of sexual assault, we should leave attraction out of it, David.
0: Well, I don't think it plays any role in it, neither of it. But but I get your point. But, Corey, you know, as as we look to this, as we look to the world, and as we look to what Rose is describing as a kind of critical set of problems for the U.S. and the U.S. system, Is there another system out there that you think is gaining attraction for the rest of the world?
3: (laughs) Uh, Parliamentary democracies, (laughs) where you actually have to make coalition governments, where you agree in the formation of a government, uh, what the policy implications of joining will be. And it's binding on the members. See what happens? She
0: goes to England. And the next thing you know.
3: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ah, but actually England's a terrible example of it because they, for the most part, don't have a multi-party government. Uh, I was thinking more of Denmark or the Netherlands or countries where you have to negotiate a binding policy set of agreements. Um the Chinese are trying to make a lot of noise about how they're the real model and they're the real upholding of the international order. And I think that's not going to work out as well as Xi Jinping hopes it will for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, their actions don't reassure, especially their immediate neighbors, of their beneficent purposes. Uh, And second you know we're engaged in the great test of hegel's theory that as people grow more prosperous they become more demanding political consumers and i my own guess is that that is happening in china as well as happening in other places so the same kinds of challenges that free societies have to reach consensus i think authoritarian societies as they move the income chain are going to be faced with, too. The last thing I will say, though, is because I cannot resist, uh, for most of the 19th and 20th centuries, at least, the United States was not nearly the shining city on the hill that we think of ourselves as. And so while I share Rosa's conclusion that the disgraceful spectacle of my fellow Republicans' behavior in trying to force through the Kavanaugh confirmation um, is bad for America's standing in the world. My comfort is that, you know, in 1956, when the 101st Airborne was forcibly integrating schools in the American South, or 1973 during the Vietnam War, or the Mm Bork confirmation hearings, Fair point. Um, there are a lot of lows. Yes, that's and, true. And very often.
0: <laughs> yeah, not to mention the Civil
1: saving,
0: War. The yeah, Civil yeah, War with the uh,
3: grace. Yeah. Uh, is that we still get some stuff right, and and we need to fix stuff where we can, and we need to not let the president or the Congress's voices be the only voices that people hear from Americans.
0: Well, no. That's a very yep. important. It's a very important point. A very important perspective. Uh, I can't help um, in the in the context of this discussion of the power of attraction, Evelyn, to bring up the recent burgeoning love affair between the president of the United States and uh, Kim Jong Un. When, <laughs> oh, yeah, when the president this weekend, when the president this weekend said that he had fallen in love. <laughs> With Kim Jong I mean, you know, you can barely imagine that this stuff is really, really happening. But he said, we exchanged letters and I think we fell in love. You know, maybe, maybe it's not just us. Maybe, maybe we're being attracted to other kinds of systems. I mean, I think Trump likes Kim's system better than he likes our own system. I'm sure he does, that's for sure. You know, he likes the press agents, the North, the the more Sarah Sanders and others around her speak, the more it sounds like they're the North Korean press agency speaking. They know it all sounds like dear leader talk. So, You know, Evelyn, I know you've dealt with some of these issues. And I just wonder, early on when you were doing this analysis, did you ever think such a love story was possible?
2: Never, never. I mean, I started working on North Korea in 2001. I traveled there in 2008. Um, But let me ask you a question. People that I felt I wanted to fall in love with, you know. um, Well, did you ever think George
0: Bush or Barack Obama was showing any sort of (laughs) emotional inclination towards the leaders of North Korea you've dealt
1: with? No, on the
2: contrary. I mean, well, you know, Barack Obama gave him the cold shoulder. Right. You know, he just said, we're just we're just going to not deal with North Korea for a little while and um, and the, you know, President Bush tried to be tough with them, which backfired. and then he was, and then he was kind of in this wooing them, but it was very transactional, and obviously didn't last. Um, I don't think that 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 you know, trying to um, declare your love for Kim Jong-un is going to make him more cooperative. I think he's just decided he being Kim Jong-un, that he wants to cooperate at all costs so that he can buy time. He wants to just become a de facto nuclear power. He's essentially, I mean, every day they're still essentially, you know, creating new nuclear material for nuclear weapons. They haven't stopped doing that. And in fact, we believe they have more facilities now and potentially over time they could build more facilities for their uranium or plutonium reprocessing. Um, and, And so it will be also become harder later to deal with the problem. So for Kim Jong-un he just wants to buy time. He can become a de facto nuclear power like Pakistan because what he really wants to do he unlike his father understands because Kim Jong-il did have some economic reforms. He had he toyed with allowing the North Koreans especially when things were tough economically to to sell. He had a little bit of free market freedoms thrown in there, but then as soon as it went too far or he he felt like he was uncomfortable with it, he would ratchet it back. And so Kim Jong-il had no real economic program. But Un, unlike his father, has understood, I mean, he understands the world better, right? He grew up in the West, and so it's logical he's going to understand better, uh, more about the free market system. And he sees next door that the Chinese have maintained control politically. While they have achieved a better, obviously, economic situation than the North Koreans, so what what UN wants to do is get the nuclear program in place. You know, have everyone ignore the fact that they're a de facto nuclear power. So that he could start getting some goodies, you know, doing some some more trade with his neighbors and eliminating, of course, the sanctions and building the North Korean economy. I don't know what his end game is. That's a big open question. You know, you you guys might recall when H. R. McMaster was still National Security Advisor. At one point, there were media articles about speculating that H. R. somehow had a view that the North Korean leader was going to use the nuclear weapons in order to. Essentially, blackmail or strong arm the South Koreans into reunifying. i I, I certainly don't see that as a short term plan of of for, for for Pyongyang, maybe over the long run, but I also kind of I don't see how the North Koreans can take control effectively political control over South Korea. So they may just use the time to build up their economy and then just get the South Koreans to agree that de facto their state will remain into perpetuity.
0: You know what that sounds to me like, Corey? It sounds to me like our president, who has opened his heart up to this guy, is going to have his heart broken. It is going to be stomped on by (laughs) Kim Jong-un, who is using him to get his way with him. And our loving, warm-hearted president um, is is going to end in tears. That's what I predict.
3: Okay, so since I am the resident possessor of the tiara of optimism, I want to give you another trajectory for this love story, David.
0: Whoa, wait a minute. You're also the one who says you don't want that visual. Oh,
3: I promise you, you want this visual because it's from Dr. Seuss's timeless Christmas story, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And as you were talking about President Trump having his heart broken, I was thinking, he has a heart size several times too small, right? He doesn't have the slightest bit of empathy from tearing children away from their parents and putting it, putting them in detention
1: camps. He doesn't have the slightest bit of— Which incidentally violates both U.S. court orders and international standards. Thank you, Rosa. Uh,
0: You are such a nerd. You are are such a nerd. But but
3: maybe just as when the Grinch and Cindy Lou Who come into contact, maybe Kim Jong-un will expand the president's capacity for human empathy. And maybe it might even extend to the 200,000 people Kim Jong-un has in prison camps right now.
0: Wow, and they could both free their people from concentration camps.
2: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, but uh, Rosa, what do you think of that? Corey has taken us a place no one has ever gone. And the reason that people and show up Cindy at Lou deep, Who? she has made an analogy between Kim Jong-un and Cindy Lou Who. And- <laughs> You know,
1: (laughs) I will say that I think that's why people that's why
0: people subscribe to DeepStateRadioNetwork.com. Go on.
1: I I think (laughs) Donald Trump's heart is not merely two sizes too small. I'm not entirely convinced he actually has a heart that can be broken. Yeah, I'm with you. His heart is a shriveled little nothing. So I think even Cindy Lou, who would have a tough time with him.
0: Uh, But she might. Yes, go on.
1: See, I
3: seed you the argument, Rosa. No, I was just, <laughs> I was just surrendering and saying, Rosa's right.
0: And and Rosa, do you want to offer anything on your predict- prediction for the future of this romance before we wrap uh, up today? So
1: uh, y- you know, uh, I mean, here's what protects Donald Trump from heartbreak, in addition to not actually having a heart. Um, He, in addition to not having a heart, he also doesn't have a brain. In fact, he's, he's like (laughs) quite a few of the uh, characters uh, in The Wizard of Oz sort of rolled into one pre-miraculous revivification. Um, You know, he, he. He's so Im- impervious to actual reality that it doesn't make any difference. I mean, Kim Jong-un could could, you know, actually lob a nuclear missile in the direction of the United States. And I still think that if Trump if Trump thought it was politically convenient to say that everything is going great and he's in love and they're all in love and and, you know, he'll keep saying it. So uh, if you have no interest in reality, you're you're even if you have a heart, your heart cannot be broken.
0: Wow. Now there oh, that is advice oh, oh. advice for the love lauren from Rosa Brooks. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> the, the the thorny crown of entropy speaks to the love of the world. And if if you're totally disconnected from reality, you can be happy all the time. Is that roughly what you're saying?
1: pretty
0: much. Yeah, well, that's uh, something to hang your hats on there, folks, and that's the place where we're going to hang our hats on this last uh, uh, moment of this episode of Deep State Radio. I encourage all of you who have not gone to go to deepstateradionetwork.com, look at the site, look at the new features. Uh, One of the things I'd like to encourage you to do, uh, besides becoming a member because that supports us and helps us grow, is to look at what we're talking about in terms of new voices. What we'd like to do is create a section on the site called New Voices where we can bring people who are not writing for, contributing to sort of the handful of establishment media in these areas can offer their. Views can have a platform for themselves, in particular, voices of women, voices of people of color, voices of people from overseas, and and voices of a new generation. We'd like to see this become the home for people to make contributions, but they have to be high quality and they have to offer something new to the equation. So we hope. Yay! We want
1: all inverse. of you. Wait a we, minute. can we just can we just add that they have to be in verse. If they don't, if they're not high quality, they should at least be in verse. I
0: hadn't really it thought of that. But
1: no, because bad verse is a on. scourge.
0: Bad verse is a scourge, Rosa. You should or know that. Verse. Okay, good verse. If something's in good verse, we will give it serious consideration. And so we will take your articles, suggestions for Limerick. little audio op-eds, but also limericks, <laughs> no, no sonnets.
3: Limerick. No, I do not want those visuals.
0: We will send all the limericks directly to Corey. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, the British love limericks by the way they, they, that's really kind of their thing anyway um, we, we, you know on a serious note we think there's a lot of people who've got great things to say who don't have a place to say them and so what we want to do is create that platform and make the Deep State Radio Network be really the Deep State Radio community and a different kind of a conversation so please join us for that go to the site Sign up, support us, but also write something. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you, Corey. And everybody come back soon because we got stuff going on here all week long. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.
3: Can I just say, I know I say this all the time, but I love you guys.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we love you too, Corey.